0: Verse number 1 says of the book of Romans, chapter 12, "...I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service." Let me read that once more, because it's our text this evening. "...I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice." Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you tonight. Father, I don't deserve your love, but you through grace have shown it and bestowed it upon me and upon all these that are here. God, I pray that you would, through the Holy Ghost, speak to hearts this evening. Oh, Lord, you know the balm that our hearts and souls need. You know the needs that we have. God, we're not seeking through the arm of flesh to accomplish them, but we're confessing our incapability, our inability tonight, our insufficiency. God, we're simply asking for you to accomplish your will in our hearts and lives. Now, Lord, that's my heart's desire. I believe even if it isn't for all, I believe at least for many and most of those here tonight that that they would exclaim that that's the desire of their heart as well. So, Father, we ask you to accomplish this that you might receive glory and honor. Lord, if there's any amongst us lost and undone, show them their need of Christ's salvation. We'll be sure to thank you. And Father, help us all as we leave this place tonight to go out into a lost and dying world and to be the light and to be the salt that you'd have us to be, that we might point others towards Calvary. Father, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I read Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I am interested in the phrase that is used at the end of this verse. Many of you have heard messages, if you've been going here any amount of time, you've probably heard two or three on Romans 12.1. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But I said a moment ago, why is it that you do what you do? The majority of us, to some greater degree or lesser degree, are trying to do something for Jesus Christ. I hope that you, in your individual life and in your daily walk, it may not be in some sort of structured uh, position in a church house, but I hope in some way in your daily walk that you're seeking to glorify the Lord and to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question to you this evening, and I hope to answer it by the Word and will of God, is do you believe that is proper? Do you believe that is worth it? Do you believe, as the Word of God puts it, that that's a reasonable thing for God to expect of you. Can I say to you tonight that in the day of casual Christianity that we live in, people would love to change this verse of Scripture because most Christians today believe that the things that God expects of them are rather unreasonable. Now, I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I'm not trying to stomp on toes or hurt feelings or, uh, you know, shuck corn or, or skin sheep. But I want to be honest with you this evening Most Christians believe God is unreasonable in the things that He expects of them. When you tell people that God expects you to be in the Lord's house, when you tell people that God expects you to give not just 10% of that which He's blessed you with, but even over and above 10%, when you tell people that God expects you to live your everyday life surrendered to Him, when you tell people that God expects you in your daily walk of life to be a light and a witness to those around you, Casual Christianity, whether it will say it uh, plainly, uh, whether it will say it explicitly or say it implicitly by its apathy and reluctancy to be obedient to the tenets of the Word of God, no matter how it says it, the theme and motto of much Christianity today is that those requests are unreasonable things. I, again, I, I, don't, I don't mean this. I'm not trying to take the switch out and, and beat anyone. I'm thankful for each and every person that's here tonight. I'm not trying to preach to the wrong crowd. There's some that were here this morning that could not be here tonight. I'm well aware of that. There's some that were here this morning that were providentially hindered, uh, either through their circumstances or through their health or whatever it may be from being here tonight. But uh, probably, if we knew the truth to, uh, before heaven, there are some that are not here tonight that were this morning because they believe it's unreasonable for God to ask them to be in the Lord's house twice on one day. I'm just merely saying that the attitude and motto of Christianity today uh, flies directly contrary to what this verse says, because this Bible sitting before me says this, that it is your responsibility and my responsibility to present our bodies, what does it say, a living sacrifice. Now, what does that mean? We could talk about that language all night. I think, in a sense, it could reflect what Paul said when he said, I die daily. I, I think, in another sense, it could reflect what Paul was saying when he says that we spend all and our spent. For your sakes. I think in some ways that it could reflect what Paul said when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. I think it could reflect what Paul said when he said, I keep my body under subjection. But I think at the end of the day, what it's saying is this, that we are to lay upon the altar everything that is us, everything that we are. It says your body a living sacrifice. So this isn't just vain and empty platitudes. But this gets right down to the practical where we live where we exist, and I believe it's saying that our schedules, our finances, our attitudes, I believe it's saying our energies and our passions and our aspirations, everything that we are, God expects for us to lay at an altar before Him and to give to Him. Now, that's extreme in this day that we live in. I'm just telling you. I mean, there you know, there's, there's churches all over uh, in this city, and and I don't really care how another church does their their services, their schedules. That's between them and the Lord. Uh, but there's some churches in this city that uh, when they move to two services on a Sunday morning, it wasn't because they couldn't pack them in and fit them in. It's because they wanted to go to the ball games on Sunday night. Now, that's not all of them, and I'm not. I, and I don't even really know anybody's heart. I don't know which ones it is, but I'm just telling you that is a trend in the day that we live in. A lot of churches that have gone to rock and roll music to keep people in, it's because they want them to have the same atmosphere on Sunday night that they had on Saturday night. And this notion that we're to be separate and be different from the world runs contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And if we don't see that, it's because we choose not to see it. Because anybody with open spiritual eyes can look around and see that that's the trend and the attitude of the day and the world that we live in. And so what is our attitude supposed to be concerning what God asks of you and me? The Bible tells us that we are called to be separated and to serve and to live for Jesus Christ. Our theme uh, on this upcoming week is to take up your cross and to follow Him. And let me say that when it talks about taking up your cross in Scripture, that's not necessarily saying bear your burdens, I know that some people say, well, you know, my my finances is my cross to bear, or, uh, you know, my health is my cross to bear, or, God help us, some of us say my spouse is my cross to bear. But that's really not what that's talking about. What that is speaking of is the crucified life. And our endeavor this week, not only to see kids saved, but also to teach them that if they're going to do something for Christ, they're going to have to learn how to crucify self and how to live for Him. The Bible gives us three things I would want to point out to you, that you and I are called by Scripture to serve Jesus Christ. He said, if any man love me, let him keep my commandments. That's as simple as it gets. We do a lot of theological somersaults to overcomplicate and try to lose that thing in the translation and make it muddy and everything else. But friend, God puts it right in shoe leather for you and I, that if we really love Him, we're going to serve Him. We're going to be obedient to it. We're called by Scripture to do this. Now, some of you say, well, preacher, it's difficult. I'd go a step further than even saying that. You may say it's difficult. You know what Paul said? Paul says uh, that when I seek to do right, I cannot find the way to do it. That's what he said in the book of Romans in chapter number 6. He said, I can't find a way to do The right thing. I would say that in and of ourselves, it's not just difficult, it's impossible to live for Jesus Christ. It's impossible to serve Him in and of ourselves. But I'm thankful that the Word of God teaches that not only are we called by Scripture to serve Him, but we are made capable through the Spirit of God to serve Him. Through the Holy Ghost that indwells within you and I, through Him empowering us and influencing us, Through Him, and listen, through, I hope, Him immersing us, we are made capable to serve Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of people, they get disgusted with the Bible, get disgusted with the church house, get disgusted with their brethren, and they just get fed up and they give up and they quit on God. And you know where it all started from? It all started from trying to live for Jesus Christ in the energy of the flesh and not in the walk and power and surrender of the Holy Spirit. Friend, that's the only way you're going to live for God, is through the Holy Ghost. Christ said, without me, ye can do nothing. And so if we're not trying to do it by His power, that's literally all we can do is absolutely nothing. We are made capable through His Spirit. But I would say to you tonight, and this is what I want to preach on, that not only are we called by Scripture to present our body's living sacrifice. Not only are we capable through the Spirit of presenting our body's living sacrifice, the Bible says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? But I would say tonight, according to our passage before us, that you and I are compelled by our salvation to serve Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this simple question? And will you answer it honestly in your heart? If I ask you tonight, What could Jesus ask of you that would be more than what He's done for you? If He asked for every penny from your wallet, every second of your day, every last ounce of your energies, and every last whim of your spirit, would it be asking more than what He's given and done for you? You see, the very thing that motivates us to do what we do, if we are serving Jesus Christ in the right spirit, in the right attitude, in the right way, is what He's done for us. We live in a world that uh, knows only of reciprocating love. But we find that the love of God is not a reciprocating love, but a precipitating love. You see, we don't, He don't love us because we first loved Him. We love Him because He first loved us. I talked about in Sunday school this morning, John fifteen 13, I've heard people quote it all the time. You know, I, in fact, I remember when I was in, I grew up in Christian school, and when, when it'd come time to do the annuals, uh, they'd always let the seniors give their, uh, you know, favorite quote. And, uh, you know, if it, if it wasn't somebody like me, mine was probably like, you know, keep on chuggling along or something. I don't know. But you know, all the kids that, that wanted to be spiritual would give a Bible verse. And a whole lot of them, every year, there'd always be one or two, that would put John fifteen thirteen as their favorite Bible verse. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I've heard countless preachers and, uh, you know, teachers, Sunday school teachers, devotional people uh, point to that verse and say, oh, the love of God that he would give his life for his friends. But that's the greatest love that man can show. Greater love hath no man than this. What's the love of God? For God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were alienated from God. We were the enemies of God when He died on the cross for you and I. And so the love that God expresses towards us is entirely different. It's not something that uh, has reciprocated by our response, but it has precipitated our response. And God has done it before we've ever done anything for Him. And you'll find that all of the things, all of the communications that we have with God, in one way or another, are begun by Him. That's not to say that we don't begin by praying, but we wouldn't know how to pray if He hadn't called our name. That's not to say that we didn't call on Him in faith. But where did the faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Every conversation in one way or another has been begun by God. And so even uh, even this, our reason for serving God, is shown and begun and initiated by what He has done for you and I. I'm interested in this phrase that's used. And I'm just going to confess to you that I, I've read this passage, I don't know, hundreds of times. And in reading them, it never occurred to me the way it did the other night, and I hope it was the Holy Ghost placing this on my heart, I believe it was, the phrasing, the very distinct phrasing that's used... In this verse, when Paul is going to show us something that is the foundation and motivation for our service, Paul's going to point to something that could cause us to live contrary to our nature, Paul's going to point to something that would cause us to lay everything we are on the altar some of you here tonight, you're serving God, you're trying to do the right thing, you're laying everything on the altar, and the devil has come up beside you, and he said, what are you doing it for? And maybe in that moment of weakness, you didn't have an answer for him. And you felt rattled, you felt discouraged. Maybe in that moment when he said, what are you doing it for? You couldn't think of all that God's done for you. All you could think is the ungratefulness of those around you, or uh, the way things didn't work out like you'd hoped or like you'd planned. And it's to you this evening that I want to preach this message. And if you're here tonight and say, Preacher, I know why I'm serving God. Everything's fine. I'm living for Him. Then let me just do something that might shore up your foundation against that day when the devil will come your way and try to discourage you from serving God. What is it that Paul points to? Notice again what he says. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by what? By the mercies of God. There in that simple phrase, we have given to us the entire motivation and foundation of everything that we do for Jesus Christ. It is the mercies of God. But I confess to you, as I've read that, I've always sort of treated it, and I say this to my own shame, as a sort of platitude, you know, just a nice saying, or just a statement that's just all-encompassing of every good thing that God's done for me. But as I began to read in the book of Romans, I find that between Romans chapter 9... Well, let me put it this way. Between Romans chapter 1 and the end of Romans chapter 8, the word mercy is used only one time, and it's a variation of the word mercy. And it's used in chapter 1, and it's the word unmerciful. Between chapter number 11, the end of it, and the rest of the book of Romans, the end of chapter 16, we find that the word mercy is not found at all. But in the three chapters that are preceding what Paul says here, The word mercy is found a whopping ten times in those three chapters. And in fact, it's found only in chapters 9 and chapters 11. Just in those two chapters, we find ten times the word mercy is used. You see, when Paul talks about the mercies of God, he's not just saying, oh, the good things God's done, or, oh, you know, he's just merciful and think about his mercy. But Paul is actually hearkening back, in, uh, if you go backwards in this letter, to some very distinct and definite statements that he has made concerning the mercy of God. Tonight I want to point out five things about God's mercy that ought to be enough. If we never got a single dime, if God never blessed us with a better car or a bigger home, uh, or uh, a better this or a better that, if we never saw a soul say, you know, I mean, listen, we're blessed. You know that? Oh, man, we're blessed. I was talking with somebody about Adniram Judson. You know, we went to camp this last year. We saw 13 saved. Went to camp last year, saw 14 saved. Uh, I, I hope and pray. I can't remember exactly how many we had saved at VBS last year. I think around the 10 or 11 mark. I hope and pray to see God save souls this, this upcoming week. Do you know that Iram Judson, missionary to Burma, spent seven years on the field before he ever saw his first convert? I'm just saying, friend, there's going to be times in your life that something's going to have to drive you other than the fruitfulness. What did Christ say in the book of John, chapter uh, number, I believe it's chapter number 6. He made this statement, He, or excuse me, chapter number 4. He made this statement. He said, my meat, in other words, my sustenance, or could we put it this way, my fuel. You're not going to go very far if you don't eat something, isn't that Right. Human body can go approximately 40-something days without eating, can go only three days without drinking something. And uh, listen, that ought to tell us something about the, the need for the Holy Ghost in our lives. There's a lot of us. We scoot our feet under this table right here. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have the Word of God. We should. We should have a steady diet of it but there's a lot of us that we slide our feet under this table every day and we take a morsel of bread, but we very rarely get plugged in and touched in with the Holy Ghost of God and surrender to Him and are in conversation uh, in our prayer closet and walking with Him. You can go a lot longer without food than you can without water. But let me just say this tonight, that you don't, you're not going to go far without food. You're certainly not going to do much without food. And so in a lot of ways, food is our fuel. So when Christ says, my meat, in some ways, I believe he's saying my fuel. The thing that drives me, he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. (laughs) Let me tell you something. If Christ quit when he got unpopular, he would have never made it to the cross. And as long as the reason you're serving God is for the fruit and not for faithfulness, you're not going to go very far. You'll hit a dry spell somewhere, and you'll give up and quit on God. You'll, you'll hit a, a, a speed bump in the road somewhere. You'll hit a pothole somewhere, and you'll give up on God, and you'll quit if you're not doing it for the right reasons. And so in this passage, I want us to notice five things that if nothing's going right, if we don't feel like things are working out like they ought to, if we don't see the fruit from our labors that we're hoping for, five things that if nothing else, these ought to keep us going for Jesus Christ. Turn with me to chapter number 9. I told you they're in chapter 9 and chapter number 11. Turn back a couple pages to Romans chapter number 9. Now, the context of what Paul is speaking about here is God's dealings with the nation of Israel in this day of grace. Now, the Bible says that God has not cast off Israel, but it's been likened unto this, and I think this is kind of a very apt illustration. Uh, when God has His stopwatch running in the book of Daniel... He appoints 70 weeks to the nation of Israel. And 69 of those weeks have already come and gone. uh, From the time when they uh, left exile and went back to Jerusalem... Up till, and by the way, you can read books, you can study this, you can look at lunar calendars and find out that up until precisely the day that Jesus entered upon Jerusalem, entered into Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey, at that very day, it was exactly 492 years between those two dates. God has appointed 69, uh, weeks, which means 69 periods of sevens, uh, 400, uh, and, uh, or 70 years all together. 490 years, uh, is what He has appointed, uh, to His people Israel. And, uh, 482, I believe, or 83 is what I'm going for. I'll get my math here in a second. Amen. It's not the theology I have trouble with. It's the basic subtraction and addition that gets me. But, uh, God, in some ways, hit a stopwatch on His dealings with the nation of Israel. He's not thrown that stopwatch away. But in this day that we live in, and there will be people disagree with me, and that's fine, you can believe anything that you want, but I don't believe that any scriptural prophecies are being fulfilled concerning the nation of Israel in this day that we live in. This is the day of the church age, the day of grace, is the times of the Gentiles. But there's coming a day immediately following the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when the time of Jacob's trouble, when the abomination of desolations, when that last week, that period of seven years in which God will deal with the nation of Israel is going to begin again, God's going to click that stopwatch again and begin to deal with the nation of Israel in the same way. But in the book of Romans, chapters number 9 and 10 and 11, He's sort of hashing out and reconciling the place that the nation of Israel has in this day of grace. And he is dealing with uh, God's dealings and God's sovereignty concerning the nation of Israel. Now, we're not going to deal with all that tonight, but I just want to point out a few things within that context. Look at verse number 14 with me of Romans chapter 9. He says this, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid." For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the world, or all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Now again, the context, God is dealing with the nation of Israel, and God is dealing with uh, why he has punched that stopwatch, and what he's doing while that stopwatch has been clicked. But I want you to notice, first off tonight, the sovereignty of his mercy. Look at that very last verse, verse 18, that we read again. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, And whom He will, He harden. Can I just say something to you tonight? Can I say that God didn't have to save you or me to be God? He was God before He ever saved you or me. God could have chosen to send us all to hell. He would have still been God. Christ didn't have to go to the cross of Calvary to become God. He was already God. He was not immaculated on the cross of Calvary. He was not deified on the cross of Calvary. He's always been the Son of God. He'll always be the Son of God. And it was the eternal act of love and compassion that motivated Him to go to the cross of Calvary. Can I give you one reason that you ought to serve Him tonight? You ought to serve Him because what He did for you, He didn't have to do. He chose to do it out of love. He could let you die and go to a devil's hell and He would have still been God. But He loved you enough to send His Son to the cross of Calvary for you. There's a lot of things. You know, we kind of live in a day where people don't do but what they want to do. Oh, there's a few things. We don't want to work, but we go to work because we want money. We don't want to put up with our family, and some people don't, but others, they do, you know. We don't want to mow the yard, but we don't want to live in a jungle, so we do that. But part of the decline that you see in churches today, and some of you, and I'll be honest with you tonight... There would have been a time, there would have been a time, and some of you remember this time, when this church would have been almost as full tonight as it was this morning, without having to bug anybody, without having to browbeat them, without having to call them on the phone or get on Facebook, give a reminder, this, that, or the other. There was a time when people just did the right thing and they just went to the house of God because that was the right thing to do. But now we live in a day where people do what they wish and want to do. And that's just the way it is. I've come to terms with that, and you might as well. We can browbeat people. We can try to bully them. We can try to guilt them. But all they'll do is put up with us for a little while until we're out of their hair. They do what they want to do. Now, let me tell you something tonight. If we're not careful, we'll let that attitude of the world infect our relationship with Christ. Or that the only time we serve Him is when it's convenient, when it's comfortable. Or that the only time that we serve Him is when it's easy on us or when someone twists our arm to do it. Let me tell you something, friend. One of the reasons we ought to serve Him is because He did what He did for us when He didn't have to do it. And there's going to be times in your Christian walk where no one will be able to keep you accountable. Will you still be accountable to God when that happens? We ought to do it, not because somebody's going to whisper or gossip about us. I hope they wouldn't. We ought to do it, not because we're afraid we're going. Uh, we need to save face with the church folks. We need to do it not just because, well, if we don't do it, there won't be anyone to do it. We need to do it for Him because of what He's done for us. We need to choose to serve Him. Not have our arm twisted to serve Him. Choose to serve Him because of all that He's done to serve you and I. I see the sovereignty of His mercy. But I want you to notice the second thing tonight. I want to notice the significance of His mercy. Look it with me at verse 19, just where we left off. Paul says, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Can I just give you the basic context of what Paul's saying here? We've just read how that God has a choice over His mercy. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're not going to unpack everything to do with this, but I want to give you a basic understanding of it. Uh, Paul is saying this, that the mercy of God is bestowed by the grace of God. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we've earned. You see, the Gentile believers that he was writing to, and he was writing to a mixed multitude there in Rome when he wrote this letter of Jews and Gentiles, He is going to go on to speak about how that God uh, is not dealing in the same way with the Jews, how that there is judicial blindness placed upon them as a people. There are some that put their faith in Jesus Christ, but by and large the Jewish people are judicially blinded. They crucified the Lord of glory and they've not turned to Him. Isn't that true? And so Paul is basically saying that God has done this Hewn out some of the natural branches of this olive tree and has grafted us Gentiles in as wild branches in this olive tree. And what he's saying is this, don't boast in that being grafted in because it's nothing the branches have done. It's all been the husbandman. And he's saying this, that God has a choice in what he does and God has chosen to bestow upon you and I mercy. Now, again, we're not talking about individual personalities. I'm not saying God chose, show me mercy, but didn't choose, show you mercy. But what he's saying is that God is not showing the same mercy to Israel right now as a nation as He is to the Gentiles in this day of grace, when many Gentiles have come to know Christ as their Savior, but it's very few Jews that have come to know Him. And Paul says there's going to be some of you that are going to say, well, what's the problem? Who's resisted His will? If he's placed judicial blindness upon the nation of Israel, then how can the nation of, uh, of how can God get upset if the nation of Israel uh, doesn't turn to Him? And Paul's answer is this: He's the Potter; you're the clay. You don't have the right to make that assertion and to make that judgment. He says this: What if God, willing to make His wrath known, endured with long suffering these vessels of destruction? What if God, willing to make His wrath known? allowed with long-suffering the boasting of some of those that he knows in his eternal mind and prescience are never going to turn to Christ. He does know, by the way. He doesn't choose for them, but he does know. He does know who's going to be saved and who's not. He don't choose for them. Don't, Don't go out here and say, I said something I didn't. We all have a free will choice. He doesn't choose for them, but he does know. But then he flips things on the other side and says, what if God... Willing to show His wrath endured them, but willing to show the riches of His glory has showered mercy on you and I. And can I just give you this simple truth? Ain't everybody going to heaven? But if you know Christ as your Savior, you are. And that ought to be enough to serve Him. Now, that's not to say that every person can't go to heaven. If they put their faith in Him, they could. Some of you say, well, you just talked about sovereignty. Yeah, let me say something about sovereignty. Uh, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's His heart's desire. So I'm not saying tonight uh, that, uh, you know, we're some part of elect group that God has chosen to heaven and other people are uh, chosen to hell. But what I am saying is the sheer reality that there's a lot of folks tonight Sitting in the recliners, watching the idiot box, alienated from God that don't know Christ, but you and I are in the house of God, worshiping and rejoicing in Him. Just the fact that God has seen fit for that ought to be enough for us to serve Him. Just the significance that He would love us and save us. Let me give you a third thing. Turn with me to chapter 11. Chapter number 11. Just a few pages over and look at verse number 30. Now, again, he's been developing this thought. But I want to share with you something that, and I'll confess to you that this may be a little redundant, but you can never get redundant talking about what God's done for us. Read the book of Psalms. You can't get redundant talking about what God's done for you. All the book of Psalms is, it seems, if it's not a prayer in the midst of trial and tribulation, then it's a historical remembrance of what God's done for the nation of Israel. And look what he says in verse number 30 of chapter 11. Now, he's speaking to the Gentiles, and he says this, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy, through their, speaking of Israel's, unbelief. You say, what does he mean by their unbelief? Well, if they had believed him, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't believe, and they did crucify him. And let me tell you something, I understand that God has a sovereign will and God's providential, but it doesn't in any way uh, absolve their iniquity in that act and their decision and their responsibility in it. And through their unbelief, through the cross of Calvary, through their rejection of the Savior, God turned to the Gentiles. And you and I, do you realize how unlikely it is that you and I would know Christ? When this whole thing started, it started in the Fertile Crescent, When this whole thing started, it started over in the Middle East. And you say, well, you know, that was before Abraham. Well, let's talk about Abraham. When this whole thing started, it started with a Syrian ready to perish. And who would have ever thought here in the Appalachian Mountains in Knoxville, Tennessee, that we'd be gathered talking about the same Jesus that stopped by Abraham's tent door? That's a miracle, friend. That's a miracle that through their unbelief, we would have the mercy of God placed upon us. Can I say that not only the sovereignty of His mercy, that He didn't have to do for us what He did, and not only the significance of His mercy, that not everybody has got in, and we're very blessed to have come to know Christ. But number three, the showering of His blessing. The simple fact alone of what He's done. The fact that He redeemed you ought to be enough for you to serve Him. The fact that He forgave you ought to be enough for you to serve Him. The fact that He justified you ought to be enough to get you out of the couch into the house of God. The fact that He sanctified you ought to be enough to get you to pry them Baptist hands uh, on that Baptist wallet and pry it open and give something to the glory of God. The very fact that He picked you up out of that pit ought to be enough to get you out to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. I mean, all that He's done for you ought to be enough motivation. I'll say it again. What could God ask of us that would be more than what He's given us? What could God ask of us that would be more than what He's done for us? I mean, friend, listen, if we is if we called to be in the house of God 24-7, it, we couldn't ever pay back Calvary. If God collected our paycheck before we even got it, like the government does, and took every penny, every penny, left us nothing but faith to live on. Probably it would be good for a lot of us. But we still wouldn't have paid Him back for Calvary. The reality is we never do for Him what He's done for us. You see, let me tell you why we don't... I'm trying to mind the Holy Ghost tonight. Let me tell you why it is that we have such a problem giving everything to Him. It's because we think so much of ourselves. I mean, something's changed between that moment when we knelt at an altar as a lost, worthless wretch and saw ourselves for what we were. Said, oh Lord, if you'll take me as I am, I'll take you as you are. God, though I may not be much, you can have all of me. We're a fur piece from that when we thump our chest, snap our suspenders and say, you mean God wants me to go to church three times a week? You mean God wants me to give him 10% and above of what my paycheck is? You're telling me God wants me to walk up to a total stranger that I don't even know? Or even worse, you're telling me God wants to go to my coworkers, my boss, go to my friends, my family, and talk about him? Far cry from the person that was busting to talk about him when you rose up a new convert and rose up born again and birthed into the family of God. Oh, it's funny how time, we all like to sing the song, Time has made a change in me. Oh yeah, friend, time's made a change in a lot of us. But it ain't for the better. Some of us, it's for the worse. Because we've grown calloused and we've grown, grown cold. And what we do, we do out of habit. We don't do it for His glory. Oh yeah, time's made a change in a lot of us. But if we can just get back closer to the cross, it'd straighten out a lot of what that time's done to us. We could just remember all that He's done for us; it'd change our attitude and perception. I want you to notice the fourth thing tonight. I'm trying to hurry. Look at verse number thirty-one. We'll read verse thirty as we segue into it. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Look at this. Even so, these also now, even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy, I like this, they also may obtain mercy. So what's that talking about, preacher? It's saying this. We're about to play with God's Rubik's Cube. You ready? It's saying this. Here are the Jews, God's covenant people. God has promised them a Messiah. God has told them there'd be one that'd come to deliver them from their sins. But somewhere throughout the years, things got turned. And their eyes got focused on the sacrifices and not the Savior. On the ceremony and not the picture that those ceremonies were painting. On, on, on the pomp and the circumstance of the matter. And not on the person of a thrice holy God. And here comes the Messiah, born in a way they're not expecting, though it was in the Scriptures. Born in a place they weren't expecting though it was in the Scriptures. Born to a household, they weren't expecting, though it was in the Scriptures. Born with a vocation, they weren't expecting, though it was in the Scriptures. Born with a ministry, they weren't expecting, though it was in the Scriptures. And born to die on a rugged cross, that they weren't expecting, though it was in the Scriptures. They reject the Lord of glory, the Prince of peace, through their unbelief. But now watch this. God turns that thing again and says, if the Jews won't accept him, he'll go to the Gentiles. God sends a little man by the name of Paul the Apostle to go out and to preach the gospel. You say, why is it that the Holy Ghost forbid him to go into Asia? I think there's a lot of reasons that only eternity will reveal. But let me just give you a real basic, simple one. This is a little geographical and a little ethnic, okay? So hold on to your hats. I don't know if you know this, but there's actually more Jews in the Middle East than there are in Asia, or in Europe. Isn't that right? Yeah. There's more Oh, I know there was a time when it wasn't that way. I know. We can talk about the diaspora and we can talk. But right now, there's more Jews there, more Orthodox Jews, more of them that are looking to the law there in Asia than there are in Europe. You know what's in Europe? Huh, a bunch of Gentiles. And Paul shook his feet off. And He said, I've gone to the Jews, but they rejected. From henceforth now, I'll go to the Gentiles. And you and I have received mercy because of their unbelief. Now watch this. You ready? Watch this. God turns that thing again. And now, through the Gentiles, the gospel of the grace of God is preached to the Jewish people. That Messiah was given to the Jews. They said, we don't want Him. God said, alright, I'll give Him to the Gentiles But now he looks at the Gentiles and says, I want you to turn right back around. And through the gospel, I want you to give him back to the Jews. Let me give you another reason that serving God is reasonable. Because of the sharing of His mercy. Because there's people that need Jesus Christ. Why is it reasonable for me and you to serve God? Because there's folks that don't know Him. Why is it reasonable for you and I to give everything that we am uh, that we are, everything that we've got, to live for Him, to do our best to serve Him? Why is that reasonable for God to ask? Because there's folks in the same lost condition that you and I were before Christ found us. There's people in the same darkness you and I was in. Again, that time makes a change, but maybe you can remember what it was like to be lost in your sins and in that darkness You can remember what it was like, darkness that veiled your life so thick that it was like chains. And God came along and busted the shackles and gave you liberty. Well, there's people still in those chains. There's people still in that darkness that need to be translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. There's people that need the mercy of God. And you and I as believers are God's chosen vessels to share that mercy with them. Let me give you one final thing and I'll hush. Look at this, I like this. Look at verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief. You see, he's talking about what he said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That, you know, we quoted this morning, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know the verse right before that? Paul says, for there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. What God's saying here through Paul is this. The Gentiles were already in unbelief in their paganism. The Jews were in unbelief in that they had a zeal according to knowledge, but not according to righteousness. They had a zeal for God, but it was not according to the knowledge of Scripture. They had a zeal to do the right thing, but they didn't know Christ. God hath concluded them in unbelief. You know, there's only two categories of people in this world, Jews and everybody else. So what's the conclusion For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Let me give you a final thing. That's the scope of his mercy. I believe we ought to serve him because the sovereignty of his mercy. He didn't have to do for us what he did for us. Because the significance of His mercy, not everybody knows Christ, and it's the grace of God that you and I do. The showering of His mercy, just what He did for us on Calvary, ought to be enough to keep us serving Him. The sharing of His mercy, because there's still some that are in darkness. But finally, the scope of His mercy, because God's not willing that any should perish. Why do we keep going? Why do we keep serving? Because God has a desire to save those that would, through repentance, put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't matter what you do, you'll never run out of people to tell. It doesn't matter who you go to, you'll never run out of people to tell. I was reminded, and I'll close with this, of the verse from the famous song, I Love to Tell the Story, and I quoted it at Senior Saints on Friday. was talking about uh, giving our testimony and telling it to others. I'm always reminded by that verse that says, I love to tell the story to those who know it best. They seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. You say, preacher, what if I tell somebody that's already saved? If they're already saved, they're going to thank you and hug on you more than somebody that's unsaved. I've never seen a truly born-again believer get upset at the gospel being shared with them. I've seen some of them that had a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, they got upset. But somebody that's truly been born again and knows Christ, they're always appreciative of it. And who knows but what some of them that claim the name of Christ have never called on the name of Christ. They say that they're a Christian, but they've never put their faith in Him. You know, God loves those people. All we hear today in this world is everybody talking and bashing on Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. They look at, at at the fundamental movement and say, well, that's a bunch of Pharisees. Can I remind you something? Yeah, there are Pharisees. God loves Pharisees, too. Right? Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. God showed mercy on him. What I'm saying is this, this simple thought. You say, why should I keep going, preacher? What should motivate me when I'm not seeing fruit? What should motivate me when I'm not feeling like going? What should motivate me when it doesn't seem to be working right? The mercies of God and the need of others of knowing and sharing that mercy ought to be enough to keep us serving and going when nothing else would or will.